Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is a great joy and privilege for me to be here with you again today. Um, last time I was here, I had a wonderful time. And even this morning, um, the way that the team and Ward led us in worship, uh, my heart is overjoyed to be able to celebrate the truths of the gospel with you today. Um, my family is not able to be here today. My wife and two kids, one more on the way. Wife is seven months pregnant. They all say hello, except for the one in the tummy. But soon, yeah, hopefully we can all see each other soon. Um, as we come to God's word, let's pray together, asking for his help to understand it. Our God, we come to you this morning uh, in need of your word. Without it, we are lost. Uh, we, we wander and we, and we flee away from all that is good and we run to those things that will ruin us. And so we pray that our hearts would be inclined to your word, uh, that we would go to it for nourishment that even when we push against it, that you would cause our hearts to be softened so that we might receive and have life this morning. We trust that you're able to do this. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. At the end of your life, how sure are you that you will get to heaven? At the end of your life, how sure are you that you will, you will get to heaven? At the past year, perhaps uh, for you as it has for me, has made me think a lot about things that really matter. Uh, about what, what matters most even at the end of life. What's on the other side? In fact, in a Gallup poll taken several years ago, when asked what was the single most crucial thing that someone thought about at the end of their life, 42% of Americans responded by saying that they are worried, concerned about whether God would forgive them or not. How sure are you that you will be in heaven? Well, the story before us this morning is told to a group of people who were very sure, very sure that they would be in heaven. And so whether we are very sure this morning or quite uncertain, we would do well to spend some time in this parable today to consider what is most important. And I know that, New Life, you've been in a series considering the stories, parables of Jesus, and we're going to continue that series today. And and in the text that we have today, it's the third of a trilogy of parables uh, that has to do with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And like most parables, Jesus uses a lot of hyperbole that seem exaggerated, seem extreme, sort of uh, comical at times, because some of the stories just take random turns and twists. But that's the nature of parables. They are hyperbolic they put the gospel, they put the demands of the gospel and, and God's word into earthly tones and colors so that we can have some better understanding and handles to understand them. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And as we move through this parable, I want to give us some handles and movements to be able to understand this text better. So three movements for us today, the first of which is the expected wedding guests. And that's verses 1 to 7, starting at verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. There's been a lot of news uh, recently, and even in television, uh, an interest in the royal family. Even as 
early as yesterday, we know that Prince Philip was laid to rest. We know that the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan went viral. And we know that Netflix now has an entire show capturing the life of, uh, of the Queen and the royal family. There's been a lot of fanfare and, and attention given to the royal family. And so even as we consider this scene, we have some kind of way to understand what the royal family is like. We understand the power, the prestige, the pride of the royal throne. And in this scene in Matthew, the king is putting on a wedding feast for his son. It's the king's son's wedding. It's the royal wedding. And we know from the past few decades that when someone who's royal gets married, that all the television screens get, get focused on them. All the attention, all the newspapers are focused on those moments. We even stay up late in, in, in our time zone to be able to watch all that's happening and our eyes are locked on those moments. If you read closely here in the text, this, this invitation is sent by the king to the guest, but this is actually not the first invitation. This is the second invitation that is sent because when you see verse 3, it says that those who are already invited, the servants were going to those who are already invited and those guests actually already said yes. They said, I'm in. They responded, they gave the RCP, and they said chicken or steak. They saved the date on the calendar. They were saying, we're coming. We're, we're coming to the wedding. This is a second notification. And so what happens after that, the second invitation comes by these servants to remind them of the wedding banquet. But this time they say, we're not coming. They said yes. They said we're in. They said we're coming on that day. But the second invitation They say, we're not coming. The king, he hears this, surely taken back. I'm sure offended by this. I mean, this is the king. And yet, even with this offense, he is patient, he is gracious still, and he tells them again to his servants in verse 4, go tell them again, those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5 says, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And then verse 6, a shocker, says, while the rest seized the king's servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. These guests killed the king's servants. These guests are invited three times, actually, in this text. At first they say yes, then they decline, then they brush it off. And then they finally, some of them, actually kill the messengers who are inviting them to this great banquet feast. I mean, this scene escalates way too quickly. And it's almost unthinkable to consider that the king, who rules and holds power and has sway and is to be esteemed, is brushed aside so casually by these guests. I mean, it's not like if I invited you over to dinner or to someone's wedding. You could... You could you could completely say no or say yes. It w- I have no power to do anything. This is, the, this is the king. And these guests are invited and they brush him off so casually as if it doesn't matter. The text says that they paid no attention. They had better things to do to take care of a farm, right? To take care of their business. They had better, more important things to do than go to the king's son's wedding. So inconvenienced. So taken aback, these guests, that some even shame and kill the messengers. Now, 
This is a parable, right? So Jesus is trying to, to show some things. What kind of connections can we make in this parable? In some ways, commentators and many have said this is one of the most impossible, difficult parables to understand. Uh, but on the other side, I actually think it's one of the most, in many ways, easiest parables to understand in some ways. Because here, the king here is God, right? He rules on his throne. He's above all. He's the, the king of the universe. The king's son is Jesus Christ. The servants who are sent out are the prophets and the, and the first witnesses and preachers of the gospel. The banquet is the marriage supper of the Lamb. But still, who are these guests? Who are these guests invited three times? It's whom the gospel of John speaks of when it says that Jesus came to his own, but his people did not receive him. And Jesus is speaking here to the Jews, and not just the Jews in general. He's actually speaking to the, to the religious elite among the Jews, those who are Pharisees and, and religious leaders and scribes, the religious insiders, those who are on, on the inside of the fray, who knew the Torah, who knew about the law, who knew about all the customs, they knew how to walk the walk of Judaism. In fact, in Matthew, these same leaders earlier are offended by Jesus, wondering, where is this man coming from? They even ask him, by whose authority do you say these things? Who do you think you are? We've spent decades climbing up the religious ladder. We've earned our way to the top. Who are you to come and tell us anything? They challenge Jesus. And part of what this parable is trying to show us is that many of the people who comprise the visible church, Many of the people who comprise the visible church, perhaps even the most prominent of them, may not actually be a part of the invisible church. Uh, To put it another way, those who are on the inside may actually be on the outside. Those who say they're in might be out. And this parable, it's not lost on us that we are sitting here within the four walls of a church building. And this is God's word for us. And so it's sobering for us as we, as we hear this. You know, just like many of you, if you are a Christian here, we've been baptized. We've been partakers of the grace of communion. We've taken perhaps church membership. We're on boards and committees. We know the creeds. We know the bylaws. We know the customs. We've said, yes, I'm in. We've said, I'm coming to the feast. But this parable is pushing us to consider. You and I have said we're in. You and I have said we're coming, but have we really come? Have we really come? Are we really in? Or am I just a religious insider who cares little for the actual king of the universe? I may have said I'm in, but am I really in? You know, I often think about my own story of just being raised in a Christian home, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, my parents introduced Jesus to me at such a, a young age, and it took me a while to figure it out, and I had many stumblings and fallings along the way, but I'm thankful for that. I even think about my own kids and of my desire and my wife's desire for them more than anything to know of the treasure which is Jesus Christ. We pray for it often. We try to speak to them often about it and best as we can display it, even with failures. And yet, 
with all of our desires, with, with the fact that we are in this church building, with many of you, for, perhaps parents, desiring for the gospel to be passed on to your children. There's a caution in this parable that the very environment of religion that surrounds us, our familiarity with it, it can actually deceive us. If we're not careful, our familiarity with religion can actually deceive us. This text is convicting to my own heart as a pastor. It's not lost on me that Jesus is, is speaking about religious leaders as he's speaking here. This text is convincing, convicting for me because, because I stand here as one who believes in God's Word, who teaches it. I, I stand here who, who is a religious leader. I, my position, whatever theological degrees I might have, uh, one who has a, a standing or pursues something in, in religious communities, I'm aware of this for my own life. And yet, in all the things that I do and say and speak and profess or identify as, none of it will ever get me one inch, one millimeter closer to God. None of it. In fact, these very things could deceive me in thinking I'm in when I'm not. Friends, we may, you and I, know of God. But to us, all of us, do we know God? Do we really know Him? Now, after these expected guests reject the invitation, God's response in verse 7 is a strong one. He says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king's angry, sends his troops to not just destroy the murderers, but also the entire city. And this response seems really extreme, doesn't it? Many of us get flustered or don't like portions of the Scripture where God is alluded to or is actually in reality an angry God or someone who, who, who turns against humanity in some way. And understandably, it, it's a hard thing to swallow. But consider what these guests did to, the, to his messengers. They, they shamed him. They, they mocked him. They killed him. And as a king, this king could not stand for it. Because it was a rebellion against his rule. It was an insurrection, a threat to his government. He had to act. But here's the temptation, I think, for us. We'll look at this text and we'll say, yeah, we, we get why, why the king perhaps destroyed the murderers, but why the others? Why the city? And I think, you know, it would be temp- tempting for us to only look at those who murdered the servants as those who deserve punishment. And yet the sin of those who paid no attention friends, was just the same. Why? Because the guest not coming in, the guest just tending to his farm or to his business, the the guest who was saying, no, I'm I'm good, it was indifference just the same. But it was more than that. It's it's sort of like saying, I've got better things to do. I've got my own life. I I call my own shots. No king will rule over me. In, In this story, Jesus cuts through the lame excuses that you and I make of our busyness, of our individualism, of saying that, you know, it's just not the right time. One group here refuses the grace of the king to come to the banquet through a casual refusal, the other through a hostile one. But both groups of people produce the same end. Both the casual indifference of God and an outright denial of him are equally damning. As one pre-tragedy is that should bring our eyes to tears. 
But the greatest tragedy in this world is the rejection and the despising of the free grace of a gracious king. Jesus, today, in this moment, if there is an ounce of of stirring in your heart to to move towards God in this moment, an ounce of you that says, I want to say yes, I'm just not sure, count that as mercy from God in this moment. Invitation of a lifetime. There is none better. And so our first movement was the expected wedding guest. Our second movement is the unexpected wedding guest. Verses 8 to 10, reading from verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the... A lot of twists and turns. Consider the scene. The first invitees are rejected by the... Both the bad and the good were brought in from the streets to this royal feast. Opinions on how things ought to be. We, we have natural opinions on how people should be. Is not for an elite group of people filtered by being this thing or that thing. They are actually made up of bad and good The kingdom of heaven is not reserved, friends, for a social or a cultural group or a Christian denomination or a political party or some other measure of success. But God says, go invite everybody. Everybody that you can find. Take take the worst person that you can imagine. If you don't think they belong, guess what? That is the very person who belongs here at my banquet table. In to your hearts, friends. I'm so encouraged this morning to even hear of the ways that you are served. That, that we believe that God has gone to the ends of the earth for the gospel to be proclaimed. Our third and final movement is the most consequential garments. Verses 11 to 14. Reading from verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get and bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The scene again turns from one of festivity and celebration and and jubilance to one of horror, right? And it, and it starts to blur the parable from a story that's just a parable to the realities of this world when this man is described as being thrown into the outer darkness, a term that gives this vivid picture of hell. But as we read that, perhaps you, like me, are shocked that this happened uh, because we must ask the question, why is someone punished so severely just for not wearing the right thing? Why are they punished so severely for not wearing the right garment? As if it were so unusual to have brought in last minute someone from the street expecting them just to have a wedding garment on hand. Right? You'd imagine that some of these people included people who were begging for bread, perhaps. You've You've got all kinds of people. How are we expecting everyone to have a wedding garment when they come into this banquet? The text gives us this picture of the king coming in to look at the guests, to rejoice over them, right? And you could see it almost like a wedding at a reception. This king going table by table, saying his hellos, greeting them. And then he comes to this table. It almost feels like the final judgment. It has that kind of flavor to it. 
when the king of the universe will examine every heart and every life and every single one of us, we'll have to give an account for our lives. And, and when the king looks at this man, we ask, should the king not have compassion on him? He's just coming just as he is. He's coming as he is. And yet, there is great punishment for this man because he does not have the right clothes. But here's the thing. This isn't just any setting. This man has come before the king. I mean the king of this land. This man has come to the royal presence of the king at the banquet feast of his son. He has come unworthy, dressed in his own clothes. There are standards There are rules, there are are laws to follow for this kind of thing. It's as if this man has come to the royal king, he's just paid no attention to any of of it. He's ignored it, he's considered it unimportant. He thought his everyday wear was enough. He's saying, through his own clothes, it's my life, it's my body, it's my rules, it's my money, it's my intellect, it's my morals, and guess what? I can come to the feast, and I can do whatever I want and be however I am. I'll taste the food, I'll enjoy the drink, I'll even mingle with the guests, and I'll enjoy a toast, but I'm wearing what I want. And this is an interesting tension here, because in the first part of this section, it seems that there are no standards, right? The bad and the good. All are welcome to feast. Go get anybody No one can earn their way in with anything. It's free. It's not earned. And yet, here is the great error of this man. Now hear this. Salvation, friends, is indeed earned. Salvation is indeed not free. However, this parable is showing us That it is earned not by you, it is not paid for by you, but it is earned and paid for by Jesus Christ. And so garments are necessary. Hear the words of Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Friends, not a single soul was at that banquet feast without a wedding garment, except for this man. Only they did not provide it for themselves, but the king himself, at his own expense, our king, at the death of Jesus Christ, pays the price of that garment. And he robes the wedding guests with righteousness. And hear this. It is a gracious invitation that God would say, Stop trying to cover yourself. You've been doing it for millennia. You can no longer cover yourself with anything worthwhile. I will come down and cover you with my righteousness, in fact, with my life. And when that happens, when your sins are forgiven, when you are washed clean, when your life is made new, when you find Jesus, you no longer look to yourself for righteousness. You no longer say that it's my sinful passions and cravings that matter and I will pursue no matter what it takes and I'm going to force myself into the wedding feast because I'm going to make it no matter what. Instead, you, you look to Jesus and you feast. 
In fact, you're a wedding guest at that banquet feast. And you're most excited that you're there. You're surprised that you are at this table. Tim Keller, a pastor, has said it this way. When every meal comes around at this feast, you get excited for every single one. The appetizers, the main entree, the desserts. You, you look at a turkey leg and say, that's, that's for me? Wait, I, I'm invited to partake in that? And you feast with joy and gladness and gratitude. My, my, my daughter, my daughter Reagan recently has been overwhelmingly affectionate towards me anytime I give her anything. We went to Rita's. She runs and hugs me for water ice. I let her go and play on her bike outside. She's been running with overwhelming affection. And it's this picture of me of this is what the Christian, when they are saved from their sins, covered with the righteousness of Christ, must be. I don't deserve this, Father. And yet you have clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. Following Jesus is more than just about avoiding hell. Following Jesus is about entering the kingdom of heaven and finding Jesus. To have every single one of our hungers satisfied. To have every one of our thirsts quenched for permanence in a fleeting world. To matter in the world. To belong. As we close, there are two ways that we can completely miss the invitation to be at this banquet feast. One way is probably the obvious way. You can lie, steal, cheat, never repent, and try to get in, but you won't. Or, as this text has for us a warning, we can depend on our goodness to enter heaven, but we won't. But, if you look at your rap sheet, if you look and see your unfitness and believe in what Christ has done for you, then you not only have a shot, but you have a full assurance that you will see heaven. True Christian assurance is a good and right thing. It's a good and right thing to know that you will be with Jesus forever, not because of your goodness or mine or our obedience or anything else save Jesus Christ dying for us, resurrecting, ascending. That is our hope. And for those of us who feel guilt and condemnation, don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus Christ and you will be covered. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray, God, that you would allow these words to sink deeply into our hearts, that we may not look to self, that we may not say we're in and yet later be found to be deceived. We pray that you would cause our hearts to be moved towards Jesus Christ and his gospel, whether we've known him for a minute or or 80 years. We pray that our hearts would be moved to know and really be in with him. We need your spirit to do this work in us. We can't manufacture or conjure up on our own. And so we pray that you would, in these next few moments, even as we respond in worship, do a work in our hearts to be able to feast and enjoy salvation that we have in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.